Uh, welcome one and all. We're going to um, recite the blessing for studying Torah together, and then I'm going to launch in. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, our God, who connects us with your mitzvot and has given us the mitzvah of engaging with the words of the Torah. So, so this week, if you're if, if, if you're new to this, the Torah is divided into weekly portions, such that in the course of a year, we traverse from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy every year. And every week, there's a few chapters that are called that week's Parsha or portion. And that becomes the, um, the template for Jewish study in the course of the year. So every Jewish group every, that's studying the Torah this week is studying this portion, the first few chapters of the book of Bamidbar, Numbers, coming up with countless interpretations, but all studying the same text which is, I'd say, the definition of the vitality of a living tradition. And uh, so that's, so now we're up to the beginning of the book of Numbers, uh, which he, whose Hebrew name is Bamidabar, which means in the wilderness. So what I did this week is I reached for a book by Aviva Zornberg, Oh, should we spotlight me, Ellen? Am I? There we go. Thanks. Hold on one sec. Uh, Aviva Zornberg, who is an amazing Torah scholar that many of us know, who called her book Reflections on the Book of Numbers, she called it Bewilderments which is we're going to talk about because the word for wilderness and bewildered comes from wilderness to be bewildered means to lose one's bearings um that's its origin a wilderness is an untracked land a place where you don't know where you are necessarily and so to be bewildered is to lose your bearings and if you don't know who Aviva Zornberg is, let me describe. She's a PhD in literature uh, who has spent her many decades now teaching Torah incredibly erudite. Like, don't try to keep up with her references to literary works or to psychoanalysis or to, you just, just try to just kind of ride with her, you know? And, um, She's amazing. And for quite a number of years, I was studying her intent intently and was, I gained so much. And then as, things, as the nature of things, those books go back on the shelf and you I turn to something else. And each year I, uh, you know, I'm kind of um, nourishing myself from different sources of, of wisdom. But I felt compelled 
this week to return to Aviva Zornberg because her readings of Torah are, ne- are always complex and um, very deep. And I think the reason I turned towards her and grabbed that title off the shelf today is that I think this is a time of bewilderment that we're in. And, um, ra- and so it really spoke to me. So I'm going to begin by describing what's going on in the book of Numbers. Again, given that, uh, and, and then see what the, not even subtext that Zornberg focuses on that we almost never focus on, uh, which um, I just found illuminating today and somehow even reassuring, even in my bewildered state. Um, So, in the book of Numbers begins with a census count. That's where the name Numbers comes from. Everything about the beginning of the book of Numbers is incredibly orderly and um, precise. So that at the beginning of the book, that's what the book of Numbers, its Greek name was arithmoi and or numeroi in Latin, numbers in English. Uh, and it's also known as Sefer HaPekudim, the book of accounting, of counting in uh, Hebrew. Um, it has not just one census in it, but two census counts. Later, at the end of the book, there's another census count, which we're going to discuss. But the book of Numbers, the children of Israel are still encamped at Mount Sinai. In the narrative of the Torah, Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, they arrive there in chapter uh, uh, 19, chapter 18 and 19 of Exodus. They receive the Ten Commandments. And then the rest of the book of Exodus and the entire book of Leviticus takes place at Mount Sinai. They are still over this next year, in, after receiving the commandments, they are incorporating them and creating the structure of the society that they will then uh, bring them to the promised land. So at the beginning of Bamidbar, beginning of Numbers, they're still at Mount Sinai, and now they are being counted and organized into camps by each tribe. And the book of Numbers describes again in great detail Specific, in great specificity, I should say, the detail, but specific, specifically, how many, in this case, men of fighting age are counted in each tribe. Then it describes how the, how the tribes are going to be organized in the camp. Three on the east, three on the south, three on the north, three on the west, the 12 tribes arrayed symmetrically 
and evenly around the sanctuary that dwells in the middle of the camp that the Torah spends so much time describing how it is to be constructed, how it is to be tended to, who should tend to it, how God's presence can be um, dwell there. And so that Mishkan, that dwelling place for the divine is in the middle of the camp. The outer ring are the 12 tribes. There's an inner ring. Moses and Aaron and his sons camp on the east side of the, of the um, tent of meeting. And then the three clans of the Levites, whose task it is to uh, um, attend to and then transport the Mishkan from place to place, are arrayed on the west, the south, and the north. And so if you can picture a beautiful, symmetrical, very organized situation. Each tribe has a banner, a degel, that flies over their camp. Picture the colorful flapping flags with the incredibly colorful sanctuary right in the middle with the divine presence in the form of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And everything is ready. The next chapter describes the specific roles of the Levite clans in who bears what through the wilderness and what everyone's marching orders are. It describes um, uh, um, the gifts that each tribe brings to the sanctuary. It describes the silver trumpets that are to be blown when it's time to decamp and begin the journey. It describes in great detail that the divine presence in the form of this cloud, this intangible yet um, an evanescent yet present protective feeling of protection that when it lifts, it is time to break camp and get moving and wherever it sets, that's where you make camp. All of this is the first eight, nine chapters of Genesis. Oh, thanks, Sylvia. We're in our second go through, aren't we? Um, since we started doing this class online, I was thinking about my, that myself. Uh, I would like to know what I said last year about Bamidbar, because it's not what I'm saying this year, uh, uh, because I'm not where I was last year. Right. What I remember is that I think it was in this one where you were talking about um, looking on at people's faces. Oh, right, right. I think that's what you discussed last year about this. That's right, because it says in the census, lift up the head of every, mm -hmm. every Israelite. Uh, so you can count them each. And there's beautiful teachings about that. I was thinking about that. Uh, and um, so there is this order. Uh, so there's this orderly sense of everyone has a name. Everyone has a place. Uh, it's all set. And, um, and then and by, uh, and then as the narrative continues, 
Ruth, is your hand up? It is. I was, if you don't mind, I was thinking of what you just said about the colorful, the very colorful arc. And I was wondering if from what we know, if most things were not colorful, if they didn't have a whole lot of dye and so clothes may have been earth tones. And then this arc is resplendent in crimson and blues and colors that you didn't see in, in cloth in general, right? I wonder, if, I mean, we have to imagine that the, that the, most, the most radiant colorful dyes were not easy to obtain. Obtain, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you save your best for this, for the, for the Shabbos table, for the special, the special room. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Sure. Okay, so here's this picture. And this is where I want to end, and a sense of direction and purpose and um, in the Midbar, in the wilderness. And because we already know the story, we know what's gonna happen. It's not gonna go so well. But what if you didn't know the story? What if you read the first few chapters of Numbers, the trumpets blast, they pick up camp, we know it's an 11 day walk to, um, the, uh, to the land of Canaan and they're freed from bondage. They've got their stuff together and off they go. And now they're gonna go there. In fact, the next, the next preparation that happens before they go, because all of this, they don't start marching yet. They still haven't started marching. I mean, I'm already up to chapter, I'm already up to three weeks from now, chapter 14. They send scouts. They send 12 scouts into the land, one from each tribe, leaders, uh, who um, are tasked with um, uh, scouting the land and coming back with a report so that the people can prepare to enter it and conquer it. Uh, at this point, everything is still going okay. And except that there are intimations of trouble because prior to the scouts going up, the people start complaining that they don't have meat and that they start complaining that why Aaron and Miriam complain about Moses. Why are you the leader? We're your siblings. We, we, we're, we should be leaders too. And um, there's all, there's in chapters 10, 11, 12, there are murmurings, right? There are problems, even though this magnificent setup is all there. And right, remember, don't forget, right in the middle of the sanctuary in the center of the camp is the ark with the tablets of the covenant in it. Everything is so ready and orderly and ready to go. And we start getting these intimations in chapters 10 and 11 and 12 that all's not well. And then in chapter 14, when the spies come back, the scouts come back from reconnoitering the land, 10 of them bring a, um, a 
dibara'a, a slanderous report. Um, they say ephes, ephes is big word and, that they use, which means garnished, nothing, nada. Ephes means like zilch. It's like, don't do it. We can't do it. The land is filled with giants. It'll never work. And the people start to cry and say, you, Moses, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness. We might as well be back in Egypt where we knew where our next meal was coming from. All we have in the wilderness is this strange manna to look at. This is all, and they start, they literally go nuts. At which point in Bashalach, the divine presence descends and says, I've had it. I'm going to kill them all. And Moses, so complete breakdown. And Moses is required to intervene, calms God down, restores the relationship, but God says, yeah, but. This faithless crowd, every one of them, in a, this is a, an intense speech in chapter 14, Every one of them, their carcass is going to drop in this wilderness. They will never see the promised land. Wait a second. This story is a tragedy. Everybody's going to die. Now, when you do a spiritual reading of the text, you can you trace a different arc. But this is where Aviv Zornberg was taking me. And given that we feel that I certainly feel like we're, I'm living through tragic times where people are just completely losing their bearings, where this possibility of going to the promised land, which was like, they could, you could taste it. And the human beings just go, they just, they just piss it away and freak out and the consequences are horrible. This generation is going to spend the rest of its life bewildered in the wilderness. God says, only your children will enter the land for you have not been able to keep the faith. Um, and when I was reading this, I don't know, I was just really struck by it because there are two censuses in the book of numbers because, so let me just go on with the, the sort of arc of the narrative. As soon as, um, this decree is made. The people say, no, 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 we'll go, we'll go. And they rush into battle and are crushed in battle. And then they're weeping and they want to go back to Egypt. And it's a disaster, a disaster. Then in the next chapter, now that they have heard the decree, there's a rebellion against Moses. His cousin Korach says, hey, why should we follow you? We just got a death sentence here. He doesn't say that explicitly, 
but you could read it as a as as the the kind of the impulse behind the uprising. Well, the story of Korach is a very dramatic story where his rebellion is crushed, actually swallowed up by the earth. The earth opens up, God opens up the earth. Korach and his followers are swallowed by the earth. The earth closes. And that chapter ends. And then the next portion, we don't realize it right away, but the next portion is 38 years later. There is a 38 year gap in the narrative between chapter 16 and 17 when Korach's rebellion is, is swallowed up by the earth. And when we resume in Parshat Chukat, it is 38 years later. Moses and Aaron and Miriam are old. Miriam and Aaron die. They, they are now on the traveling up towards the banks of the Jordan. And um, uh, they're getting ready to invade. And so another invade the promised land. And so another census count is taken in chapter 26. An entire census count. The numbers are the same, 600,000 and change. But it's a completely different set of individuals. I had never really thought about it that way. It's like those 38 years, that generation is swallowed by the sands of the desert in the same way that Korach's company is swallowed. In fact, as many of you know, only two individuals who were part of the first census are part of the second census. And why? Who? It's Caleb and Joshua, the two leaders who came back from the scouting the land and said, no, it's a good land. We have to have confidence. We have to believe we can do it. We can go up there and do it. And God says, because they kept faith with this destiny, um, they, and with me, they will enter the land. Two, Caleb and Joshua. And it's sort of, then the book describes all the journeys that the Israelites made. And then it brings up the five daughters of Tzolofchad who demand a land holding in the promised land, as opposed to all the people who said, we're not going, or we don't believe it can happen. And God says, because the daughters of Tzolofchad have faith in this destiny, in this mission, they're going to get their land holding. And that's pretty much where the book ends. On the banks of the Jordan River. Okay, so for those who are not familiar with the whole narrative, there it is. Now, this is a day when I wish we were sitting around the table because I would really honestly want to hear what everyone's, uh, you know, because 
you know, I just wish I could. Uh, the time will come, but feel free to keep raising your hand or putting comments in the chat. Um, now, in the idealized narrative of Bamidbar, of this book, idealized not just, idealized over many centuries, the Midbar, the wilderness, is the place where God speaks to us. And this is the elevated understanding of wilderness. Um, it's the place where we unite with God. It's the place where it says in the prophets, God found us in the wilderness and, and uh, uh, embraced us. Um, the wilderness becomes a metaphor for the, for, um, uh, kind of a spiritual bliss, right? And that is one of the narratives that we tell. Another narrative we tell is what I said before, which I like teaching is that this idea of counting is also an idea of, as Rashi says, counting your children to make sure they're all there, right? So the wilderness is also a kind of spiritual mm, training ground for these, for the children of Israel who need to learn to trust, to trust the cloud and follow it, to trust that the manna will be there to sustain them every day, where it says, God is doing all this to show you that humans don't live on bread alone, but on a deeper sustenance, everything comes from God. It's radical spiritual training. It's a kind of spiritual boot camp, this wilderness. And um, what this narrative doesn't take into account is that as Aviva Zornberg says, we can also read this as a narrative of great sadness. Uh, that this growth, that we all, this journey we all take to whatever degree of success we're able to, of leaving bondage and heading towards liberation, understood politically, understood internally, spiritually, all the ways we can understand this, this, um, this uh, um, archetypal journey of the human spirit that the, that the Torah depicts from slavery, oppression, lack of volition to faith, strength, confidence, trust, openness, you know, all the things that we want to take on this journey through the wilderness. It's a beautiful metaphor and a beautiful paradigm, and it's true. And I was thinking, I don't have a kind of, uh, I'm not in the mood to tell a kind of Pollyannish story about the spiritual or the political journey, because the truth is, it's hell in many ways. Human history is hell. Each of our own journeys is an incredible amount of 
taking the long way around, of being obtuse, of not understanding, of being bewildered. I thought, okay, I'm liking this more and more. Um, as a reflect, since, since it is my working hypothesis that the Torah's strength is that it reflects the realities of human experience, in addition to expressing our highest aspirations, this actually strengthens me in my reading. And I, uh, that the wilderness, the wilderness is both a place for attunement, purification, clarity, but it is also a place of terror and bewilderment. And then the question becomes more acute to me, which is how do we, let's see, how did I write it down? Um, how do we keep our bearings amidst our bewilderment? How do we keep our bearings amidst our bewilderment? Our bearings, by the way, as depicted in the Torah, the reason I love the image of we experience God as a cloud or as a pillar of fire is that neither of those can be like, you can't tie them up with a bow. So the, so keeping your bearings in the place where you don't often forget which direction you're going requires this ability to discern something that's not evident all the time, not like concrete. What do you think the golden calf was? Give us a God that we can hold. And I was thinking that one of the things we do in our bewilderment is we grab onto ideas that are two-dimensional. Even if our ideals are uplifting, you know, we're on our way to the promised land, if we don't acknowledge the bewilderment that accompanies it, that journey, and we just rigidly become, in a sense, Pollyannas, that's a, that's a cartoon of a person. In the same way, I take it, I take it over the alternative. The alternative is that we embrace the works of our own hands, or how else shall we say it? that um, in our bewilderment, we latch on to identities and identifications that exclude both the sense of possibility, we become cynic, cynics, and or we become um, rigidly devoted to the truth that saves us, right? As opposed to, a cloud of unknowing that we have to track on our journey humbly. It's very humbling. Like, how do you keep your eye on that prize? 
How do you not lose your bearings? But either way, I was thinking that if we find rigid ways to try to keep our bearings and then ignore our bewilderments, we become cartoonish. And unfortunately, I don't mean in the funny way. We become, we become dangerous because we're not embedded in reality. But reality is terrifying and bewildering. But it's not everything because we also discern, we look at another face and we know there's more. There's a direction we're going, there's a reason. But in the wilderness, when you look around at a trackless wilderness, you're nothing. You're a dust moat. Who cares? And so there are those other teachings in the book of Numbers that we do matter, that our choices do count, that we become a covenantal community so we can journey together. Um, and then, so here we are, and each of us at various moments says, you know, do I matter? Does any of this matter? Look at human history. Look at, I mean, we are, we are doing terrible in so many ways. And what else is new, you know? And uh, why bother? Uh, have we lost our way? I was writing all these phrases down. And what Aviva Zornberg says is that when we're bewildered, we need imagination. I love that turn of phrase. We need to, what makes us more than uh, random scattered atoms is our ability to imagine a promised land and to organize ourselves to try to head in that direction. And so that ever, that ever present, that's, that's the ever present human situation. That seemed like the right take for me on the, on the book of numbers today. Um, and, uh, can I give an example of what, Leah? Was that a while ago? Why don't you unmute yourself? You were saying, don't be too Pollyannish and don't be too this and don't be too that. Uh, well, I could get up and be your preacher and say, God is good. It's all gonna be all right. Everything's gonna work out and it's bullshit. <laughs> That's what I mean. Pollyannish can be bullshit. Uh, when someone actually needs to hear, yeah, isn't this a mess? I hope we can get through this. Let's do it together. That's a whole different take. That's what I meant. I hope that's clear. Um, yeah, there's a time for encouragement of one kind and a time when that kind of encouragement is just going to be, oh, get out of it. Oh please go talk to somebody else like that. 
you know. Sickness, sickness, bad sickness. Mm-hmm. For example, but what about what's going on in Israel right at this moment? Is everything going to be all right? I'm pretty bewildered. I, I could make a nice, I could write a nice op-ed piece about whose fault this is, but I actually, okay, that might help a little. Like, I'm bewildered. What can I do? Why is this happening again? Why can't humans get it right? It's so obvious, and yet. So I'm like, I'm responding to this moment, not to mention in our nation as well, and watching humans like, put the entire planet at risk. It's like, uh, whew. So Deborah said, and don't we get, so saying it's all going to be okay is a good thing to say to your three-year-old when they're trying to get to sleep. Right? You don't want to, you also don't want to be an idiot and not reassure them and surround them with your love. You know, uh, on the other hand, if that's all you say, I don't think it's uh, the truth. Uh, Deborah said, and don't we get our bearings from being inspired by people who walk through the wilderness with grace and courage and faith? Who inspires us? Caleb and Joshua inspire us. They don't say, this is all worthless. Why are we here? They don't say that. They, yes. Thank you for writing that. Ellen? And what Caleb says, we can do it. That's we what Caleb says. It. We I can do line. it. We can do it. And if we fail, well, then we try. You know, but we can do it. It's possible. Imagination. Imagine a nation. That's nice, Abigail, because the the slaves who've come out of Egypt have to imagine themselves as a nation, as, as a, as a and, uh, and that's where the idea of covenant becomes so important. Because if we have a shared agreement that we can do this, and here's how, we have a, we have a, a, a society that coheres and an opportunity to uh, perhaps progress. Deborah says, I saw a poster in a classroom that said, we can do hard things. That's nice. That's different than um, we're gonna succeed. I really like that. We can do hard things. Come on gang, we can do hard things. Um, and uh, uh, Avigal wrote, the cloud can be a symbol of what has happened a reminder of the miracles of the past. Yes. What is it that the children of Israel are unable to keep in mind? It's almost as if they're, um, I love thinking of them as the children of Israel because it's almost like they're infants who have no object permanence. As soon as Moses is out of the room, they can't remember that they just crossed the Red Sea, that they were enslaved and now they're free, that there's manna falling for them in the wilderness. And so the cloud can, how do we learn? This is another thing that um, Aviva Zornberg brought up. Um, 
That's right. If you lose your bearings, how do you develop the ability to remember where you were so that it can orient you again? Oh yeah, that's where I was going. So you might say that we have moments of inspiration in our lives, moments of clarity, moments of elevation, moments where our sense of purpose is crystal clear to us. God bless and God willing, you've all had moments like that. And then we get bewildered again because life is such a barrage. So this is where the word, um, I would say, um, okay, I'm gonna take us on this little, little language excursion. The word for faith in Hebrew is emunah, okay? Emunah means faith. Faith also means in English, trust, right? It's the same word uh, in, in Latin. Trust and faith are synonyms. So faith is the ability to trust that you're going somewhere, that there's a, that there's a direction that we can do hard things, that there's a place we're headed. So emunah comes from the same root word as amen, amen, which means surely or so be it, you know, at the end of a prayer, it's an affirmation. But listen to what else this root, aleph, mem, nun, means. So, the verb aman is to be trustworthy, firm, true. If something is ne'eman, it means faithful or trustworthy. The verb la'amin means to believe, to trust, to have confidence in. There's more though, because aman also means to nurse or to bring up a child. Imen, oman means also to train or to educate. And an oman is a master craftsperson or artist who has been trained or nursed or to have confidence. It's like this whole galaxy of words here. And Oman, I said, is a nurse in modern, in Hebrew. When uh, Moses is complaining to God, he says, am I a nurse that I should breastfeed this whole people? Oman. And Omanut, is art, artistry, skill. So I'm very taken by this word for faith, which somehow, as Zornberg points out, is related to the original mother-child relationship. Something about the baby looking up from the breast 
has something to do with this word. Because I think all language comes from our body experience, really. So the word for faith and the word for skill and the word for artistry and the word amen are all related somehow to this bond that if we if we can attach and this is where Avigdor goes into her psychoanalytic stuff if we can attach to the good mother we have a chance of living a life of confidence and faith that would appear to be the through line that i perceive that will allow us to deal with our bewilderment and if we didn't get that kind of foundation then we have to figure out in our lives how to reparent ourselves to live with the trust that we are wired to develop as infants wired we are not just wired for bewilderment we are wired for connection and a sense that there is a there is someone there for us and there is a place where we're headed and that we matter as individuals so with gratitude to Aviva Zornberg I was ready for her complexity again because the book of numbers is a book that describes both a tragedy that whole generation died they don't have emuna they haven't they didn't maybe it's because they grew up under under severe oppression you know maybe it's a result of being slaves they can't do it once they're free all they experience is bewilderment and a desire to return to what they knew but if one attaches then you can detach then you can as the child does go farther and farther away from from the from the from the source and remember that she's still loving you she's still loving you even when she's gone and died this that love that nurturance that suckling that confidence is still there it appears the children of israel cannot achieve that this generation of slaves those who fell in the wilderness the beautiful thing is the story's not over a new generation does arrive in the spiritual individual journey something in us has to die so that we can live with that healthy attachment to the source of love and so we can string more and more moments together in between our bewilderment that carry us through the wilderness of our life 
That's what I want to bless us all with. Is that we can develop that confidence that can carry us through the inevitable, utterly bewildering segments of life and still remember that there's love and there's a purpose and a goal to our being. We're carrying the Torah right in our midst. It's supposed to remind us. The cloud is supposed to remind us. The manna is supposed to remind us. In fact, as it's proposed, everything that happens to us in the wilderness is there to teach us to trust. The generation of slaves cannot learn. Their spirits have been crushed. And they were dragged out kicking and screaming. They had moments of ecstasy. They saw God at the Red Sea. They heard God at Mount Sinai. They couldn't connect the dots. They had no foundation. They could only cry out for the mother that was not there. But their children grow up learning how to trust. And then there are the anomalies. Joshua and Caleb are the exceptions that say, even if you were raised in deprivation, it does not have to be your destiny. So they're there as beacons. Who knows why there are those people who grow up with their spirits unbroken? Aren't they astonishing? And aren't they each of us, really? <sighs> so, I guess that's what I wanted to say today. Thanks for letting me spin that out.